Welcome to the preaching and teaching ministry of Mary and Oaks Assembly of God in Ocala, Florida. We invite you to open your Bible as we join Pastor Tim McIntyre for today's message for Bible study. Today we continue our sermon series on the life of Jesus from the Gospel of Luke. We're working our way through the Gospel and we've gotten up to Luke chapter 4. And the title of the message today is Don't Be Scammed. Don't be scammed. How many of you, that's something you are concerned about? You don't want to be scammed. The rest of you should be a little more concerned. There's a lot of scams that are out there. You know, people that want to take advantage of you. People that want to lie to you and convince you of something that's not true so they can gain from you. You've probably gotten emails like this too. I've gotten them all the time. And it it just just so happened, I think it was just God. Yesterday, I got an email. And um, I haven't responded to it yet, but just want to let you know that once I do, we're good. Because it said that it's from this couple in England, and they won the lottery over there, and a lot of money, and just to give glory and thanks to God, they chose 50 people at random, and I happened to be one of them, or the church was, I forget which email it came to, and they were going to give one and a half million pounds, Uh, you know, I heard some people like, it's a scam. <laughs> they said, all you got to do is send us this information, your name, your phone number, your bank information, you know, all this kind of stuff so they can get the money to us. For a long time, it was emails out of Nigeria or Kenya of people that had moved there and their husband was a great oil executive and he'd stashed away millions and millions of dollars. Then he died and the widow needs to get the money out of the country And she'd be willing to give you a good million or two if you just help her get the money out of the country by putting it into your account. You know, there are, that that sounds like, that's such an obvious scam, I would never fall for that. But obviously some people do or they wouldn't keep doing it. But there are all kinds of other kinds of scams that are out there. There are scams that are focused specifically on senior adults. There are scams that appeal to our greed Our desire to have, and it just sounds so good if I just respond to this, I can have, in most cases, is a lot of money. But there are scams that are designed to appeal to our fear. If you don't do this, then the IRS is going to come and shut down your bank account. And um, I get emails all the time saying, your Amazon account has been compromised. If you don't send us... Uh, you know, this, that, and the other. You're not going to be able to order or receive things, you know, whatever. Or your, your credit card information has been corrupted, and so we need you to send it to us so we can get it fixed. Uh, I heard about one scam where people will call a hotel and ask for a specific room number at random. It doesn't matter which room number. And when the person in the room number gets on the phone, they say, oh, this is the front desk. There was a little trouble running your credit card. We want to make sure we have the right information. Can you repeat your credit card information to us? And then they do it, and they write it down, and now they've got all the information. People are very creative at finding ways of cheating people and of scamming people. Say, what does that have to do with the Gospel of Luke? We're going to be talking about a time when the devil tried to scam Jesus. And he wasn't successful. 
But the experience that Jesus went through has a lot to tell us about how we should avoid being scammed, not by the people that might send us an email or talk to us on the telephone call, but being scammed by the devil. Because I want to tell you something, the devil wants to scam you too. Why do people fall for scams? As I said, either fear of consequences if the scam happens to be true, or a desire for gain, or they're just gullible. We all are from time to time. But in our story here, the devil tries to scam Jesus. Let's read it all the way through here. It's Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 13. Follows right on the heels of the story we talked about last week, and that was when Jesus was baptized by John, his anointing for ministry. He's ready to step out into the public and begin to do that ministry that he came to do. And the Holy Spirit comes and fills him. He was empowered by the Holy Spirit. God speaks from heaven and says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. A wonderful, victorious moment. And then Jesus experienced what many of us experience. Right after a wonderful victory, an exciting time with God, everything falls apart and you go through a really tough time. Isn't that how life goes sometimes? That's where you pick it up in Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 1. It says, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. Please understand, Jesus didn't do something wrong. Jesus didn't go somewhere he really wasn't supposed to. Jesus didn't get off track somehow, and that's why he went through a really tough time. He was led by the Spirit. Can I tell you that as we go through life, if we are led by the Spirit, there are times God will deliberately allow us and even lead us through difficult times. But it's not because he doesn't love us. Because of a work he's doing in us and he wants to do through us. And that's exactly what's happening to Jesus here. So he goes into the wilderness led by the Spirit, verse 2, for 40 days being tempted by the devil. If you're familiar with this story, you know we're going to talk about three specific temptations. And sometimes people think that, well, the devil came and tempted him three times. No, this verse, these verses seem to indicate that he was being tempted in so many different ways for the whole 40 days. And it's only at the end that we find these three specific temptations that Luke mentions and Matthew mentions. So he says he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God... Throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. So Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness to face a difficult time of testing and temptation. And many times that is true for us too, especially after a great victory. 
But right here at the very beginning, we meet the ultimate scammer, the devil. Now, the Bible doesn't call him a scammer because they didn't have the word scam back then. If they did, it probably would be in there. But the Bible does say some other things about the devil that are true of scammers, and that is that he's a liar. The devil is the ultimate scammer. And Jesus is in the wilderness, and he's tempted by the devil, his enemy, and our enemy too. The topic of other sermons and Bible studies that we do have a spiritual enemy and he is real and he is a living being, an angelic being, a fallen angelic being with other fallen angelic, now demonic beings under his authority. And he is opposed to God and everything that belongs to God and God's plan and God's people. And we don't know if he fully realized who Jesus was at this moment, but he knew that God had sent him to accomplish great things. And so he wanted to get him off track. He wanted to divert him. He wanted to diminish. He wanted to destroy what Jesus had come to do. And so here was his first opportunity to try to do that. The Bible tells us that our enemy, the devil, is a liar. John 8, 44 Jesus said that the devil, there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. In John 10.10, Jesus says the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. God sent Jesus. So as a result of his life and his death, burial and resurrection, we could have life. Abundant life, which affects now, but affects eternity. We can have salvation. He died that our sins could be forgiven. But the enemy is compared to a thief. The only thing he wants is to steal, kill, and destroy. You know, the enemy would love to keep anybody and everybody from coming to have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. But even for those of us that do have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, he wants to do everything he can to cause us problems, to thwart us walking in victory, to keep us from enjoying that abundant life that God wants us to have, to destroy us, to steal, and to kill. So he uses temptation. The word for temptation in the original language is the same word for test or trial because of the same thing But depending on who's responsible, it illustrates the end result that they're looking for. I didn't explain that very well. I kind of got a brain freeze there. Let me just give you this definition. One One commentary puts it this way. A temptation means to put to the test to see what good or evil strengths or weaknesses exist in a person. When we are tempted, when we are tested... Whatever's inside of us and whatever we choose to put our force of will behind is what's going to come out. Good or bad, right or wrong, strength or weakness. We talk about temptation, we're talking about from the devil's point of view. The devil will orchestrate circumstances or whatever so that we are tempted, so that we're faced with a choice to either exhibit a strength or a weakness. To allow what is good in us, strengthened by God's Holy Spirit, to have victory or to allow what is evil in us, our sinful nature, our flesh that draws us 
to do things that God says are not good for us, whether we're going to let that have victory. And can I tell you that when the devil orchestrates that, whenever he sees us in a situation, he is rooting for you. He's rooting for you to fail. But in that same situation, that temptation is also a test. It is a test to see, will you make the right choice? It's a test to see if you'll depend upon God's Spirit to do the right thing, to pursue that which is good and righteous and holy and pleasing to God and what God's Word says is what's best for us. Or will we give in? And can I tell you that in the midst of that temptation, in the midst of that test, God also is rooting for you. But he's rooting for you that you will win, that you'll have victory, that you'll do the right thing. He wants you to succeed, whereas Satan wants us to fail. And so in the wilderness, as Jesus is being tempted for these 40 days, a multitude of things probably coming his way. The devil wants him to fail. He wants him to fall. He wants him to sin. He wants him to do something wrong. But God is there to strengthen him. And we know from this story and from other scripture that Jesus succeeded in every instance. And we came to these last three temptations, the, the, the three crowning temptations, the three perhaps most alluring, the most, um, the most destructive come to Jesus probably at his weakest point. Forty days of fasting and praying. He hasn't eaten for 40 days. And both Matthew and Luke said, and he was hungry. That's kind of like, well, yeah, I guess so. How many of you ever get hungry if you don't eat for 40 days? You're like, I don't know. I've never not eaten for 40 days. Most people don't, but we can imagine. I get hungry if I don't eat for three or four hours. You laugh because it's true of you too. I've had fasting times, shorter, longer, whatever, and you get hungry. So anyway, but the question arises, why was Jesus tempted? There's a number of reasons why Jesus was tempted, and this obviously, should be obvious anyway, that this isn't the only time he was ever tempted. I guarantee you, all through his entire life, he was tempted because he was human. Now, he wasn't just human. Scripture tells us, truth tells us, theology tells us that Jesus was God himself come to earth as a human. He was both human and God. But as a human, he lived the life that we live. He faced the things that we face. Scripture says, I'll read it in just a moment, that he faced the same temptations that we face. So it's just part of being human. When Jesus made the choice to come as a baby in a manger, grow up and fulfill God's plan... He knew he'd face temptation because it's part of being human. It was also part of his training. Just like uh, temptation and testing times for us are part of our training as a believer, as a follower of Christ, that we can grow stronger. Jesus did it so he could identify with us as human beings. Theologically, Jesus did it to succeed where Adam and Eve had failed. You know... Jesus had just come out of the baptism where God spoke from heaven and said, This is my beloved Son. He's the Son of God. And after that, we read through the genealogy that Luke puts there. In Luke's genealogy, he ends with tracing Jesus' ancestors all the way back to Adam. And he says, And Adam was the Son of God. You know, Adam and Eve, Adam was considered a son of God in perhaps a metaphorical way. And we find that this son of God in the Garden of Eden with his wife Eve are tempted in much the same way Jesus is. In fact, if you ever want to get into a really good study, um, compare the temptation of Eve 
with the temptation of Jesus because they're the same issues that are being used for temptation. The same things Jesus faced is what Eve faced. The devil used the same techniques. He used the same procedures. And he does the same thing for us. And it's very interesting. Jesus is probably in the worst of circumstances. He's out in the wilderness, out in the desert, hasn't eaten for 40 days, yet he succeeds in overcoming temptation. Whereas Adam and Eve were in the very best of circumstances. They were in the Garden of Eden. They could have anything they wanted to eat at all except for the fruit of that one tree. And they failed under the best of circumstances. So this story tells us that Jesus succeeded where Adam failed. And just as when Adam failed, that sinful nature was passed on to the whole human race because Jesus succeeded. When he died on the cross to pay the price for our sins, he brought about the victory that we can have over temptation in our lives. But there's another really interesting theological thing you can study later, and that is that God actually called the Israelites his son. It's found in Exodus when he's talking to Pharaoh. He says, I want you to deliver my son out of bondage. Talking about the Israelite nation. And you know, the Israelites left bondage and went into the wilderness. And because of their rebelliousness, they were in the wilderness for 40 years. And while they were there, it was a testing time. God never intended for them to spend 40 years in the wilderness. God intended for them to spend a year at Mount Sinai so they could strengthen their relationship. And he was going to take them right into the promised land. But right off the bat... They didn't show faith. They sinned. And so they were disciplined. They wandered in the wilderness 40 years. And, and God says that's going to be a testing time. And unfortunately, during that time, they failed over and over and over and over and over again. But God never gave up on them. And he did eventually take their children into the promised land. But again, we see Jesus resisting temptation and passing the test for 40 days in the wilderness where God's other son, the Israelites, had failed. But can I tell you the most comforting thing for me, and I think it probably would be for you when you really grasp the reality of it, is the fact that one of the main reasons Jesus did what he did was so that he would know what we go through. And he could sympathize with us. The writer of Hebrews talks about that. In Hebrews 2.18, it says, Because Jesus himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. And then in Hebrews 4.15, The writer says, we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. What that tells us is that no matter what we go through, Jesus understands. Jesus knows what it's like. He never failed, he never faltered, he never gave in to sin, but he knows. Sometimes people say, well, you know what? He doesn't know the full extent then because he didn't give in to it. He doesn't know how bad it is. Can I tell you that it was actually worse for him than it would be for us? Because you see, when we're tested and we're tempted, if we don't give in, it gets stronger and stronger and stronger. And then we give in and it's done. Jesus never gave in. So that means the force of the temptation, the force of the trial, the test, just kept getting stronger and stronger and stronger, and he kept withstanding it. He knows what you're going through. He knows what you're facing. And he's not standing up there like, I did it, you can do it too, and if you mess up, forget it. He's up there, he says, I know what you're going through. And when you fail, you can come back to him in repentance and ask him to forgive you, and he will forgive you. He understands what we're going through. So the devil is trying to divert Jesus from the Father's plan with lies. He's scamming Jesus. 
And he'll use the same lies on us. He won't use the same temptations. We're not going to be tempted to turn stones into bread. We couldn't, even if we wanted to. He's not going to tempt us by saying, I'll give you the whole world and rulership and authority over the whole world. That's just not going to happen for us. He's probably not going to take us to a very high place and tell us to jump off because God will catch us. But the principles behind those temptations are exactly the same for us. And that's what I want us to look at real quickly this morning. So let's take a look at these lies that he told, these scams that he got involved in. The first lie we found in verses 2 to 4. That's the one where it says that Jesus had fasted for 40 days and now he was hungry. And again, that's very, very obvious. And so he says, listen, if you are the son of God. Now, the way that's worded in the original language isn't like if and you probably aren't. It's actually worded saying if you are and you know you are, then do this. And basically he's saying, Jesus, if you're really the son of God, and I know you think you are and you are, then prove it. And not only prove it, but you know, if you're really the son of God, you deserve whatever you want. And whatever you need. If you're the son of God, you're hungry. It's been 40 days. You haven't eaten. Why don't you turn the stones into bread? And behind that is the idea of God's not taking care of you. God's making you go through this. Maybe there's a better plan. You know, you've got the power. You can do it. Reminds me of Satan talking to Eve. Did God really say you shouldn't eat of all these trees? She said, oh, no, no, we can eat of the trees, just not this one. Planted doubt in her mind. God really doesn't want what's best for you. God doesn't really care about you. If you're the son of God, turn this stone into bread. You'll have something to eat. Prove it. You deserve it. Now, was eating a sin? No. Jesus ate his entire life except for times he was Fasting, we eat all the time. Eating is not sin. Would creating bread be a sin in itself? No. Jesus created bread later on with the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000, maybe some other other situations we're not aware of. Creating the bread wasn't a sin. What was it that made this a temptation to sin? It was that underlying principle that I said that basically Satan was trying to... God's not taking care of you. You can't trust in God, so trust in yourself. And so the sin would be to use the power that he had, that Holy Spirit that had filled him to empower him to do the work of God in a way that God had not said that he wanted it to be done. In a way that would just fulfill his own needs and his own desires rather than God's plans. It was not part of his plan at this point. And so if Jesus would have given into that temptation, he would have been not trusting God and God's plan and God's provision. He'd be putting his trust in himself. What's the root lie here? Because again, we're not going to be tempted to turn stones into bread. But the root lie here is you need to satisfy your desire now. You need to satisfy your desire now. Jesus, you're hungry. You haven't eaten for 40 days. You, you know, forget God. He's obviously not taking, he's forgotten you're even out here. You're hungry. Just go ahead and satisfy that desire now. Doesn't matter what God thinks. You got the power. You got the ability. You got the authority. Just do it. But look at Jesus' response in verse 4. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Again, this is a really interesting study. You can dig into yourself. But all three of these quotes from God's word that Jesus uses 
to rebut Satan's temptations come from Deuteronomy, from the story of Israel in the wilderness and the times that they failed and what they were supposed to learn from that. That's where all these verses come from. And basically what he's saying is bread is important, but it's not as important as obeying God. Meeting our needs, having our desires fulfilled is great, but it's not more important than doing what God wants us to do. Obedience to God is more important and ultimately more satisfying than meeting a temporary desire. And can I tell you, the devil comes to us with the same lie. You need to satisfy your desire now. Now, please understand the desires we have inside are many times for needs we have, like the desire to eat means, you know, if you haven't eaten, that you need to eat so you can stay alive, you know. And other desires, you see, for the most part, most desires that we have are not good or bad. It's how we choose to fulfill or meet those desires that can be good or bad. I mean, even food. The desire to eat is not a good or bad thing. If we do it in a responsible way, it's a good thing. If we do it in an irresponsible way, it can lead to all kinds of health issues and, I mean, even get to the point of sin. You say, well, wait a minute. If I don't eat exactly right, is that sin? Well, I mean, I don't know exactly where the line falls, but the Bible talks about gluttony. And it's a sin. Okay? I think of the desire for sex. Pastor, you can't talk about sex in church. I've done it before. God created that to be a good thing within the boundaries that he established. And when that desire is fulfilled within those boundaries, and let me be very clear, those boundaries are between a husband and a wife. And not before their husband and wife, and not with somebody else. And I say that with all love, that that's the way God made it, that's the way he created us. That's what's best for us. God is against any other sexual expression, not because he's trying to spoil our fun, but because he knows what's best for us. But let me also be very quick to say that God loves every single person, whether they express their sexuality in the right way or not. He just wants to see them delivered from the things that bind them. And we should love everybody, no matter how they express their sexuality or not, or no matter what other life things they're involved in. Because God loves them, and our goal is to reach out to them and help them to come know Jesus Christ as their Savior, have their sins forgiveness, and in the process become delivered from those things that are binding them, just like we have the privilege of being delivered from those things that bound us. Got a little sidetracked there. Didn't plan to. Desires for ambition, to make something of ourselves. That's also part of God's plan for us, that, that we don't just sit around and be lazy and just get by, but I want to make something of myself. I want to get a good education. I want to have a good occupation. I want to make some money. I want, I want to accomplish things in this life. And hopefully, as we have that desire, it's like, I want to accomplish something that's significant, not just build my bank account. But again, that kind of gets into how it can start drifting into something that's not good. When our ambition drives us to only get for ourselves and in the process to step on and step over other people and to treat people with injustice and oppression, that drive, that desire for ambition is wrong. Whereas if it drives us to do what's right and to live a good life and to provide for our family and to provide for the work of God, it's a good thing. 
So again, most desires in and of themselves are not right or wrong, good or bad. It's how we decide to fulfill them. And so the point here is the devil wants to take these desires that we have, many of them desires that God gave us, and use it in the wrong way. To say, God, I don't want to fulfill my desires the way you say, because I think it would be a lot more fun, a lot more satisfying, a lot more fulfilling to do it the way my flesh says without realizing that the enemy is also there kind of stirring that up. You need to satisfy your desire now. Whatever makes you feel good now, indulge yourself. Don't wait. You know, there's some things that God says, this is a good thing for you, but you need to wait. You need to wait till a certain time, wait for a certain circumstance in your life, whatever. But they don't say, don't wait. Just go ahead and indulge in it now. God's holding out on you. God doesn't want you to have fun. God doesn't want you to enjoy life. He's always trying to tempt us to satisfy a normal desire in the wrong way or at the wrong time. James talks about this in James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. He says, each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. We have this desire inside. It grows, and we have to choose how am I going to indulge, feed, fulfill that desire. And if we choose to do it in a way apart from God's plan and God's purposes and and his standards and those things that he's put in place because he loves us and wants what's best for us, then it leads to sin. And that sin, when it's fully grown, brings death. Well, the best way to encounter lies is with the truth. And what is the truth that counters this lie? The truth is this, that God knows what's best. God knows what's best. Now, sometimes people don't believe that. In fact, that's why most of the world pursues their own way apart from God because they don't believe God knows what's best. But we have to decide, do we believe that? I know that another thing the devil uses is that when, the de- when, when God lets us go through a really tough time and things are falling apart, and, and, and to be honest with you, most of the time it's our own fault anyway because we've done stupid things or sinful things and we brought it on ourselves, But even if that's not true, because so many times we do go through difficulties that we didn't cause. Somebody else did, and we're kind of stepping in it. They made the mess, we're stepping in it. But we're like, God, why are you letting me go through this? And God wants to work in and through that to mold us and shape us and make us stronger. And if we really believe that God knows what's best, even in the midst of those times, it's like, God, I don't like this. I don't understand it. But I'm still going to trust you, and I'm going to do what you say to do, knowing that you're going to work it out, and you're going to bring something good out of it, and ultimately it will have been better for me to do what is right than to give in and do what is wrong. So whether you believe it or not, this is the truth the Bible says, and I've found to be true in my life, and I believe probably many of you have found to be true in your life, that God really does know what is best. When he tells us that you shouldn't do something or to wait, it's for our own good. The long-term benefits of doing things God's way far outweigh the short-term enjoyment of giving in to our desires in the wrong way. Whether it has to do with, like I said before, our sexuality, it has to do with our honesty. You know, if I don't have enough money, do I steal from my employer? Do I steal from some other source? I'll be honest with you in ways that maybe... Some of them don't categorize as sin. This is how a lot of people get involved in financial trouble. You need to satisfy your desire right now, and you can, because you got five credit cards, and you can apply for five more. 
and you can get a quick and easy loan. And before you know it, people are in bondage to debt. Again, I'm using an illustration that may or may not be sin, but I'm just showing you how our desire, or our, 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 yeah, our desire to meet desires now lead us into problems. Anyway, let's go on to the second lie. The second lie we find in verses 5 to 8. And that's where it says that devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in the moment of time. Must have been some kind of a vision um, or whatever type thing, you know, because there's no place in the world you can go and stand and see the whole kings of the world. But I'm just kind of a vision thing. And he says, listen, all these kingdoms. And at the time of Jesus' life, Rome was in charge of most of the world in that area anyway. And I'm sure he probably even saw beyond that to the far east and other places and the devil says, listen, I've got authority here, you know, and I'm going to give you all this and authority and glory now if you'll just serve me, if you'll just worship me, if you'll just work for me instead of God. I'll give it to you all now. Now, can I tell you, one of the reasons this is such a strong temptation is that Jesus knows he's going to get all that stuff anyway. Say, so, oh, that means that the temptation must not have been very strong. I mean, if Jesus knows he's going to get it anyway, he just has to wait. Temptation probably wasn't all that strong, but you've got to remember what the cost is going to be for Jesus to get to that point. You see, Jesus is king of kings and lord of lords. He already is. And one day that kingdom and his lordship will be established in a very real way, in a very physical way on this world. He knew that from the very beginning. But the cost was going to be his life. You see, basically, the devil's saying, listen, you can have everything God's promised you. You can have everything you've planned for, but you don't have to go to the cross. And you don't have to wait for it. You can have it now. So the, the problem here is he's got to make a choice. Do God's will and worship him, or do Satan's will and worship him? And, and, and what is the lie behind this? What is the lie that we can relate to? Because Satan's not going to offer all the authority and the power and glory of the world to us. But here's the root lie. There's another way that is faster, easier, and better than God's way. You know, you're trying to live for God. You want to do the right thing. But you know what? There's another way to get what you want. And it's faster than God's way. It's better than God's way. It's easier than God's way. I know there's a lot of overlap to the first one. And there's going to be overlap with the third one. They all kind of go together. There's another way. I find it interesting that just like Satan told Eve a half-truth, he told Jesus a half-truth. There was a lot about the world and its authority and power structure and its government that was under and is under Satan's control. But is anything in this world under Satan's ultimate control? No. God allows him to have a lot of power and influence as part of his plan that we can't dig into now. So when Satan says, hey, I've got all the authority, I can give it to you. I've got all the power, I can give it to you. I can make sure you get all the glory. That was a half-truth. So Jesus' response, we see in verse 8, again, quoting from Deuteronomy, a, a, a passage that deals with God's children, Israel, in the wilderness and how they had failed. It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. He says, you know what? The road I'm on, it's going to be tough. And yeah, it's not near as easy as what you're offering. But God's God, and you're not. And God is the only one that's worthy to be worshipped and to serve. 
And that same lie the devil uses with us. There's another way that's faster, easier, better than God's way. Satan tries to get us to grasp what we want without the hassle of trying to do it the way God would want us to do it. What's the truth that counters that lie? The truth is this. If we give in to Satan's schemes and his scam, we're going to get bit. We're going to get stung. Because you see, the reward is always less than promised, and the cost is always more than expected. Now meditate on that. The reward that Satan promises you, it may feel good for a while, it may satisfy for a while, but it will not ultimately satisfy. It will not last. Even if it lasts this entire life, for eternity you no longer have it. But most of the time it doesn't even last this entire life. I mean, how many times have we gotten that new car? And after three months, four months, six months, it gets two dings in the side and this, that, and the other, and somebody spills their Coke in the back seat and all that kind of stuff, and it's like, this, was, this isn't near as satisfying as it was when I drove it off the lot. You can apply this to anything you buy. Because, you see, anything we have in this world, it's, it's subject to decay. You know, even in other areas, you know, that we seek certain things. We do it outside of God's plan and God's purpose and his desires for us. His desires are for us, for us to experience the best, what's really best for us. It may satisfy for a while. You know, the Bible says there is pleasure in sin for a season. We talked about this Wednesday night. Heard a preacher once say that if you're not having fun sinning, you're not doing it right. Now, that's not meant to encourage you to sin. There is pleasure in sin for a season. But then the consequences, the consequences. You see, the reward is always less than promised, and the cost is always more than expected. How many times have we gone the wrong way, thinking it's going to be worth it because of what I'm going to gain, and we got down the road, it's like, oh my goodness, there were consequences of this I never dreamed of. It wasn't worth it, but now it's too late. We cry and plead and ask God to help us and thank God. God will help us with any problem that comes our way, but the consequences are still there. The results don't last. They're not satisfying. I like this statement. Satan offers cheap substitutes. Satan offers cheap substitutes. Again, you know, you want to get ahead. And so the devil says, well, cheat. You know, God says study. Apply yourself. You know, Satan says cheat. Do that at school. Do that at work. Do it in life. Take the easy way out. When difficulties come, especially if you, you've created them yourself, just take the easy. Don't keep your word. Don't keep your commitment. You don't like your marriage? File for divorce. Now, I'm not trying to say there are never circumstances where divorce is not justified. Scripture says there are. But today, you know, I think some people approach marriage like, hey, we'll give it a shot. If it doesn't work, we'll just get a divorce. No big deal. The commitment's not important. Don't keep your word. Give up on your relationships. If they're not perfect, write them off. They say something, do something that frustrates you, that ticks you off. And God says, no, work on that relationship. Work it out. Go to them. Try. No, I just won't have anything to do with them anymore. I'm going to get myself in trouble. I go to church and it's not perfect. I'll just leave and go somewhere else. 
Listen, if you go to a different church looking for a perfect church, you're not going to find one. And even if you do, as soon as you start going there, it won't be perfect anymore. Oh, but there's stuff, this, that, and the other. Well, why don't you just stay and you pray and you work and you do what God calls you to do and you build relationship knowing that people aren't perfect and neither are you, but we're the body of Christ and we're going to love each other and we're going to make mistakes along the way and we're going to hurt each other's feelings sometimes, but we're going to serve Jesus together instead of spending all this time... We're looking for this perfect group of people, and we never find them until we get to heaven when we don't have all these things to deal with. I didn't even mean to go that way either. <laughs> okay, let's go on to the third lie. The third lie, we see that in verses 9 to 12 where it says that he took Jesus to Jerusalem, took him to the pinnacle of the temple. Not really sure what that's talking about. There's two different places that were at the temple that were very, very high. The highest one was on the corner of the temple, and it looked over the Kidron Valley. So you had the temple that went down to its foundation. Then you had a valley, 450 feet from the pinnacle all the way to the bottom of that valley. And Satan says, listen, why don't you throw yourself off of here? God will take care of you. You Well, what was the main thing behind this? And it could be a couple of things. It could be that maybe the idea was, you know, if people are watching you do this, God lifts you up. Well, that's a great way to start your ministry, isn't it? You know, the word goes around, hey, that guy jumped out the temple and God just, whoo, caught him and hovered him down to the ground. He must be something special, you know. But I think that more so than that, it was this thing of saying, God says you're his son. He says, if you're the son of God, do this. You know, God loves you. Why don't you make him prove it? Make sure that, you know, you know that he really, really does. And then the devil quotes scripture. Can I tell you the devil knows the Bible better than you do? And he can quote it. He'll quote it out of context. That's exactly what he does with this. He's quoting from Psalm 91, which is a great psalm talking about how God protects his people, takes care of them, meets their needs, and helps them with whatever they face. He says, he'll command the angels. They're going to bear you up so you don't stub your feet. But the context isn't that you can just do whatever you want to do and God's going to make sure it doesn't hurt you. The context is as you are loving and serving God, he's going to protect you. You will not face anything that he doesn't allow into your life. I mean, that, that passage does not mean that as long as you memorize it and pray it and claim it, you will never, ever get sick. You'll never, ever have a financial problem. You'll never, that's not what it's saying. That's saying that as you're serving God, he's on your side. He's taking care of you, and he'll get you through whatever you face. But Satan twisted Scripture, and he can do the same thing. For us. When you're facing a temptation, if you get scripture coming your way, either in your head or somebody's telling you, say, that sounds good, but I'm not real sure. You need to research that scripture and look at it in context and make sure that really is what God is saying in that scripture. But the temptation here is to draw attention to himself, to make God his servant, to make God prove himself. So what's the lie that's behind this? Because Satan's not going to, This is the only one I can see where Satan might tempt someone. He might tempt someone to commit suicide by telling them, jump off of a cliff, God will take care of you. But other than that, it's not a temptation we'll face. But what's the lie behind it? You can do whatever you want, God will protect you. You see, that is something that we as Christians wrestle with. We're faced with temptation, we want to give in. It's like, I really shouldn't, I know it's wrong. But you know what? God will forgive me. 
God will take care of me. I can always repent later. And can I tell you that there is some truth to that because any time we sin, we have to understand this because we will fail, we will fall, we will give in to temptation. I'm not prophesying. I'm not saying we should aim for that. But when we do, Scripture is clear. If we repent, that's an important part. Repenting means I'm sorry for sin and I want to stop doing it. It doesn't mean I did it again. God, forgive me so I can go out and do it again tomorrow. But if we repent, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, so a little side issue here I want to deal with because it's so very important. Too many people are in bondage. Another lie that the enemy will tell people is that you've gone too far. You've done too much. You've sinned too greatly. God can't and won't forgive you. If you're repentant, God will. I know there's that whole blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I can talk to you about that some other time. But if you're really concerned about it, you haven't committed it. God can and will forgive any sin if you're repentant. But the point is, sometimes we as believers can say, ah, I'm just going to do what I want. You know, I'm under grace. You know, God's grace is wonderful. It's real. But he calls us to a lifestyle of holiness and righteousness. And some people have gone so far to the grace side, the idea is, I can live with however I want. I'm saved. I'm blood-bought. Jesus died on the cross. My sins are forgiven. I can do whatever I want because his blood covers everything. But Scripture is not just strong about God's grace, but it's strong about the fact that if we really do have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, we will walk in obedience. Because if we really love Him, we want to please Him. We want to do what's right. And we also believe what we've already been talking about. God does know what's best. If He knows what's best and He says, I should do this, I'm going to do it. It's hard. I'd rather do something else. Be more fun to do something else right now. Sometimes we feel like, yeah, I'll sin and I'll ask God to forgive me and not really big deal because God's promised to forgive. What's the truth that counters this lie? You can do whatever you want. God will protect you. The truth is this, and I've already alluded to it. God will forgive foolishness and sin, but the consequences remain. You know, we can sin. We can repent. If we're truly repentant, God will forgive us, but the consequences will still be there. But yet sometimes people, they do their own thing, blah, 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 and then they get into a jam, and they're so upset with God. The Bible deals with that too. In Proverbs 19, 3, it says, When a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. It says people pursue life, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever or whatever, you pursue your own life apart from God's plans and purposes. His great desires for you to experience the best, to experience what's best for you long-term, not maybe in the short-term, but long-term, and then things all fall apart. You got the negative consequences. You got these problems. Your finances are a mess. Your relationship is a mess. Your marriage is a mess. Whatever it is, you don't know how you're going to go forward. God, why? And it's like, he's like, you did it. I'm not saying he literally says that, but that's the truth of it. As I said, thank the Lord that God will help us with any problem, but he's not going to make the problems disappear in most cases. Be very careful that we as believers, those of us that are, don't fall into this trap of thinking, well, i got a good relationship with God. I can kind of live how I want uh, and just believe that God's going to work it all out, you know? One of the saddest things I've ever heard, and I've heard this a couple of times in my ministry, 
is when someone wants to talk to me personally as a pastor, and, and I'm always willing to do that when someone's got honest questions or wants some advice, and I always tell them, I'm not a counselor, I've not been trained as a counselor, I'm just a pastor with a lot of experience and a knowledge of God's Word, and we can meet together and talk, and I'll tell you what I've experienced, what I've seen other people experience, and what God's Word says about it, okay? But there have been a couple of times that I've met with people, and they are determined to do a certain thing, and it's against God's will and God's plan, very clearly spelled out in Scripture. And you know what their reasoning is? But I know God wants me to be happy. So somehow it's okay if we break God's standard because he wants us to be happy. That's illogical, much less anything else. Let's work on wrapping this up. Satan's lies. What's, what's the summary of all these things? Worship team, you can come and get ready. The summary of all these things, we've already referred to it, God doesn't know or want what's best for you. And therefore, you need to do your own thing. That's what Satan tempted Jesus with. You came to do God's plan, but you're hungry. You've been 40 years in the wilderness. You're supposed to, to, to get the kingdoms of this world, but you're going to have to go through a cross. You really sure God's got your best interests in mind? Why don't you cast yourself off the temple, see what God does about it? Because God really doesn't know what's best for you. God really doesn't want what's best for you. So why don't you do it my way? Why don't you do it the way you feel like you should on the inside? Now, Jesus didn't feel that on the inside. He didn't have a sinful human nature. But that's the way he comes to us. Why don't you just go ahead and follow that sinful human nature? Because it'll feel good. It'll make a temporary solution that probably will be good enough. But it really won't. God doesn't know or want what is best for you. You know, as far as living life, some of the best advice is found in Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. That basically says that, you know, and this is not to say that you can't make decisions. You know, you're not supposed to use your wisdom. God gave us wisdom. God gave us common sense. He gave some people more than others, but... We all have some, okay? We're supposed to use that. The Bible talks a lot about wisdom and getting it from other people. But he says, whenever your wisdom contradicts what God says, trust what God says. He knows a little bit more than you do. There's a lot of bit more than any of us does. It's trust in him with all your heart. When you're understanding and he, what he says is, don't lean on your understanding, lean on him. And if you do that and you walk with him and do in all your ways, in every part of your life, you put him first and say, God, whatever you want, that's what I want. He will. Some translators say direct your path. He will make your path straight. He will get you through what you've got to go through. So, as we see in the illustration of Jesus here, the best way to combat lies is with the truth. And we find the truth in God's word. Another great reason why we've got to be in God's word. Paul in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17, he's talking about this armor of God, and he calls God's word the sword of the Spirit. It's how we defend ourselves and how we attack our enemy, the word of God. Jesus responded every time to what Satan said by saying, it is written. Basically, what he was saying is, God says this. God says this. That's the way we need to approach when Satan comes to us. Well, you know what? This is what God says. And, you know, I'm trusting God. Yeah, I know it'd feel good to do this. I know I want to do this. But you know what? God says this, and I'm on God's side because he's on my side, and I believe he wants what's best for me, and it's tough right now, and that won't be easy, but I'm going to trust if I do what God wants me to do. He's going to take me through. He's going to provide for me. It's going to be worth it. It's going to be worth it. 
The last verse we read in verse 13, it says, And the devil had ended every temptation. He departed from him until an opportune time. You see, he did come back. Satan tempted him with these same things a couple of different times. Last Wednesday night in our Bible study on Peter's life, when Jesus is talking about he's going to have to go to the cross, and Peter says, No, Lord! And, say, and Jesus says, Get behind me, Satan. Because it was the devil speaking through Peter, saying, You don't have to go to the cross. Remember, I told you that before. And even as he's hanging on the cross... People were mocking him and said, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. Because he, he was the son of God. And he could have come down from the cross. But if he had, we wouldn't have been saved. It's because he chose not to give into that temptation. The price was paid for our salvation. So how do we apply this today? This has been more of a teaching training time to help us recognize Satan's lies. And I just encourage you to stop believing Satan's lies. Stop falling for his scams. They're much more prevalent than you think. The biggest messes of our lives are probably caused we did believe in his lies. So start believing and living according to the truth. Because God really does know what's best. And if... You are one of those, whether you're here or online, and you've never surrendered your life to Christ. You never made that decision. I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to trust in him for salvation and what he did on the cross to save me from it. And I'm going to live for him. I'm going to do things God's way. I challenge and encourage you to do that today. Let's all stand together. I'm going to ask our elders to come and Pastor Jan to come. We're only going to be a couple more minutes. Our worship team is going to sing a song, and we're just here to pray with you. If you have anything you want us to pray with you about, for yourself or for someone else. If you don't have a relationship with God or you're not sure if it's where it needs to be, you want us to pray with you about that, we'll be glad to pray with you about that. So we're going to do that for a couple of moments and then I'll come back and close the service in just a couple of moments. As we close our service today, I just want to encourage you and challenge you. Look in your heart. What's the biggest thing you struggle with? We all have them. Can you take that to God today and say, God, I struggle with this. And I want to live out the message today, the message of your word. I want to do the right thing. And it's hard. Temptation is real. It is strong. But Lord, I want to depend on your spirit to live the life you have for me. I can't do that for you, but I challenge you to do that. Father God, we come to you today thankful for your goodness to us thankful, Lord God, for what you are doing in our lives. Thankful that you called us to yourself, that Jesus came and died on the cross to pay the price for our sins. And that we can stand here, sit here, be at home, wherever we are, knowing we're right with you. But Lord, we still have to live our life and it's not always easy and the enemy is against us. But Lord, sometimes it's so obvious and we run the other way, but sometimes he draws us and he pulls us and he uses our sinful flesh, Lord God, to, 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 to cause us to want to do the wrong thing. And we know it's wrong, Lord. Father, I pray that you would help us to stand upon the authority and power of your word, to take advantage of the power of your Holy Spirit who dwells within us, to do the hard thing and say no to those temptations, to do the right thing even when it's difficult, even when it may cost us something, Lord. Father, I pray for wisdom because sometimes we're faced with a choice and we're not sure what the right thing is. But Lord, I believe that you will guide us if we'll listen to your voice. 
God, help me. Help each and every one of us with the areas we struggle with because they're all different for each of us, Lord God. Whatever it is, Lord God, when we face that situation, I pray our first thought would be to breathe a prayer. Maybe even to say, Satan, get behind me. Jesus said it. We can say it too. But Lord, help us to walk in a way that pleases you. And I thank you that as we please you, we can be assured that you want what's best for us. You're on our side. You'll provide for us. You'll take us through. God, we thank you and we praise you for it, Lord, in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed listening to today's message or Bible study. For more information, please contact us at area code 352-347-3001 or visit us online. If you are interested in supporting this ministry, go to our website and click on the online giving tab. Our website address is www.marionoaksag.org. 